You're listening to Comedy Central. Please welcome Robert Sapolsky. Welcome to the show, Professor. Thank you. <laughs> what I've always enjoyed about you, uh, and we met a while ago, was that you look like a professor. <laughs> I like that. It was a requirement. Yeah. You've got, yeah. You've got, you've got a professor face. I enjoy that about you. <laughs> uh, and what a time to have you on. Let's, let's talk about this book, Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and at Our Worst. This was 10 years. This book took you 10 years to write. Uh, and despite being a pessimist, you, you, you have confessed that you've learned what gives you optimism is basically that there is an idea that we can learn about how to better the human condition, how we can get human beings to do the right thing as opposed to the wrong thing. How did you get to that conclusion? Well, I think the starting point is, you know, we're a miserably violent species, but at the same time, we're also an extraordinarily altruistic and compassionate one. And the main thing that sort of gets at it is it really depends on context. Because in one setting, you fire a gun and it's like the most appalling act possible. In right. another, it's heroic and self-sacrificial. You, you put your hand on top of someone else's and that could be deeply compassionate or that could be a deep betrayal. Our behavior is incredibly context-dependent. In other words, if you get the context right, we're a whole lot nicer of species than we are an awful lot of the time. What, what does that mean for humans as a whole, though? Because if we go, uh, we are nice and it depends on the context, does that mean that in some context, Donald Trump is a nice person? No. no. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. That's, uh... <laughs> What is on, that? On the average. On the average. I like yes. that. I like how you're like, nope, 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 not at all. Um, what does that mean for us as people, though, if, if you're trying to decipher it? Because, I mean, I've read through most of the book, and what's tough to understand is what it means. You know, some people have arguments that I read all the time where they go, well, you know, some people are genetically predisposed to committing crime. Mm. And people always use that as a, a dog whistle for racism. They go, well, you know, black people like to commit crimes, and that's what they're always going to do. As somebody who studies neuroscience and, and the biology of it all, does that make any sense? Um, that's right around when you get apoplexy over, like, oh, come on, what century are you functioning in? I mean, in terms of genes and behavior, genes don't cause behaviors, genes don't determine behaviors, because right. genes work incredibly differently in different environments. And it basically, at the end of the day, winds up being useless to ask what a gene does. What does it do in the particular environments in which it's been studied? What does that mean for the, for the U.S. system? Let's go into the book. You, you talk about how the criminal justice system, for instance, in America, is broken in a way that I've, I've never thought of before, and that is the neuroscience of it is broken. What, what does that mean? Well, sort of the core of the American legal system in terms of thinking about like how the brain works is basically if you're so organically impaired by some brain disease that you can't tell the difference between right and wrong, yeah. that's a pretty good mitigating circumstance right. in a trial. And that's something called the McNaughton rule. Uh -huh. Gold standard, McNaughton was a guy who almost certainly was a paranoid schizophrenic who attempted to kill the Prime Minister of England because of the voices he was hearing in 1840. That's it. 
That's the neuroscience that the legal system has uh, sort of absorbed since 1840. I mean, 1840, like people hadn't even figured out test tubes or Bunsen burners yet. That's it. The legal system is based on neuroscience. That's about 170 years old. But what does that mean for today's legal system then? Well, you're dealing with a system that is medieval in its knowledge of human behavior. Right. I mean, probably the realm where that's most important is sort of issues of volition where you've got plenty of people who know the difference between right and wrong, yet in a particular moment, a moment of particular arousal, particular stress, particular neurological impairment, nonetheless, they do what they know to be is the wrong thing. And that is something, for example, you would see when there's damage to a part of the brain called the frontal cortex. People there with the front, frontal cortex is like the coolest part of the brain, does self-control and emotional regulation, gratification, postponement. And if your frontal cortex is damaged, you know the difference between right and wrong. And you say, I'm going to reach right here because this has the better payoff. And at the last second, you go for the wrong one. Were you grabbing the pussy there? What were you doing? <laughs> I didn't know what that, that... That seems like it. You know what's wrong, and then you... You grab for that. Please, sir. I'm a professor. So, <laughs> forgive me. Okay. Grabbing the vagina. I apologize. <laughs> um, America is, is very politically polarized at this point. And in the book, you talk about how uh, scientifically you've discovered, or, you know, the research has shown that America's at a point where progressives and conservatives actually have brains that are wired differently? Yeah, which either counts as, like, duh, <laughs> you think, or um, is very informative in that it's got nothing to do a lot of the time with sort of the issues that one would think are going on in people's heads when they come up with political stances. Instead, things like, on the average... Uh, social conservatives are made more anxious by novelty than are social progressives. They're made more anxious by ambiguity. They're made more anxious by whatever is coming in the future. On the average, social conservatives are more worried about germs and hygiene. You look in the bathroom of social conservatives versus progressives, and the former have more cleaning items in there. So Democrats are like washing my hands, <laughs> and conservatives are like, wipe twice. <laughs> At least before and after, yes. And, 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 sorry, sir. That's, that is such a, an extreme idea, because it's, it's frightening, because it makes me then go, are you saying that in America, there is a possibility that it'll get to a place where people are no longer politically making decisions, but rather reacting to who they are as human beings? Well, I kind of think that's always the case. There's just... We're biological organisms. There's biology rumbling along in us all the time. And here's, here's a finding in that realm. This is like one of my favorite studies in the whole book. You take somebody and sit them down and you give them a questionnaire about their political stances. Yes. And if they're sitting in a room with a smelly garbage can, people become more politically conservative about social issues. Doesn't change your politics about economics or the like trade balance with Nepal or any such thing. But if you're kind of having a part of your brain that tells you that something smells kind of unnerving and disgusting, you're more likely to decide that somebody else's lifestyle is not only different, but 
wrong and disgusting. So is it possible that Republicans in America have a smell around them all the time? <laughs> um, maybe. Um, but what they do have, what the studies show is, uh, on the average, once again, social conservatives have a lower threshold for gag reflexes. Things make them more disgusted than conservatives do. You know, it, it's actually sort of fascinating how this works neurobiologically. There, there's this part of the brain called the insula. And you take your basic run-of-the-mill mammal, and if it bites into like some disgusting, toxic food, yes. the insula activates and reflexes. You retch, you gag, you spit it out. Right. It's like, great, you don't get poisoned by rotten food. Same thing in humans, but now instead, take a human and have them tell you about something totally rotten they did to somebody else once, or tell them about somebody else's appalling, rotten act, and the insular cortex activates. And in us, it's also evolved to handle moral disgust. And thus, if it's something horrifying enough, we feel sick to our stomach, we feel queasy, we're left with a bad taste in our mouth, we feel soiled by it, we feel washing out damn spots sort of thing, that we have a brain that somehow evolved to do the literal disgust that's gustatory and disgust that's this metaphorical moral sort of, and it has trouble telling them apart because it's only about 50,000 years or so that humans have come up with this bizarre thing of having moral rules that could be violated. This is, I'm just gonna go away from this with Republicans have a smell around them all the time. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show, Professor. <laughs> Behave is available now. Robert Sapolsky, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.